Welcome to Phoenix and Flame, pushing through and transforming even when you feel like a pile of ash. This podcast is not intended for use as psychotherapy. If you feel you are in crisis, please call 911 or contact your local crisis hotline. Hey guys, I have an announcement. This podcast, this particular episode with Stephen Snook was really quite amazing and it lasted longer than an hour. There was no way that I was willing to cut this down to 30 minutes. I just couldn't do it. There's too much good stuff in it. So instead, I've decided to divide it into two parts. So you're about to hear the first part and then the end of this particular podcast episode, it will be halfway over. And then the next uh, podcast episode I will launch will be part two. So enjoy. Welcome to Phoenix and Flame. I'm Dana, and this is my podcast on pushing through and transforming even when you feel like a pile of ash. We have an amazing guest with us today. I am so excited for you to hear his story and really kind of walk along and understand some of the things that he's been through. Our guest is Stephen Snook. Now, Stephen spent 19 years in federal prison for a nonviolent drug crime. He got saved there and was born again in 2003 and received the baptism of the Holy Spirit in 2004. Now, he was a minister of the gospel in prisons all across America. Now, fast forward 2017, he spent 377 days in solitary confinement. And we're definitely going to be talking about that. (laughs) Those days, he says, were spent in intense prayer and fasting. During that time, the Lord revealed himself in many signs and wonders to Stephen. Many inmates were born again during that time. Stephen wrote a book about those experiences while he was in solitary confinement with a three-inch pen and some scrap paper. Now, since his release from prison in February 2022, he created a business based on a dream that he received from God. His company created the first of its kind digital scripture frame that automatically rotates a new scripture as often as you like. He's also been a guest lecturer at multiple colleges, including Bradley University, and is driven to spread the gospel and tell his story of redemption. Stephen, welcome to Phoenix and Flame. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That is so interesting. I mean, oh my gosh. So we could start any number of places, but <laughs> what, what is on your mind? Like what happened? And I know you have a story of, you know, how it all started for you because people sometimes they see when someone goes to prison, but they don't understand the backstory. They don't understand what that person endured, what they went through, how their life began. I think that would be helpful to understand as much as you're wanting to share with our audiences about what your life was like and what led to your time in prison. Well, thank you for that intro. And and I really like that as an opening question, um, because when I did uh, give a lecture at Bradley University, they gave me the floor for two hours. And I'd only been out of federal prison for about six months at that time. But uh, they wanted me to speak to a class, a, a criminal justice class that is full of future lawyers and judges. And one of the things that I was bringing to them was the reality of the fact that there is a defendant in that courtroom 
and and probably justifiably needs to go to prison. Maybe he is a bad guy and he's done some bad things and he needs to go. But there is a story there. And there's a reason why that man is the way that he is. No justification for what he done. Yes, he does need to pay the, the cost for that. And prison reform and those type of things, I could I could go on for days about that. And I have some, some ideas that I know would work in that area. But there's always that story there. So I appreciate that. And I, and I will start right there if you allow me to. I'd love for you to. I was born, um, actually, I was born in Hampton, Virginia. Now, I currently reside in the state of Illinois, but I was born in Hampton, Virginia. Um, I have an older brother that is 17 months older than me. And when I was born, my mother was 15. So she had him. She was probably 13 years old. And it just abject poverty. My brother and I had two different fathers. Um, Her whole family was just poor, illiterate, just not a good situation at all. And she tried her best to take care of us. And when I was about a year old, it was overwhelming. I mean, she couldn't afford to put diapers or shoes on us. So uh, this would have been around 1977, 1978. I was born in 76. She just set us by the side of the road and called the cops. And mm. they just came in and grabbed my brother and myself and put us in, the fo- in a foster home. Uh, so we spent some time in a foster home. My brother's family came and got him out of a foster home and then later returned to Virginia to come and get me to keep the two brothers together. So there, that's how my journey began. That's how I ended up in Illinois. And that's where I was raised in Illinois by my brother's father's sister who became my aunt. Uh, But the situation in Illinois was not much better. Um, She was a waitress, good woman, good hearted woman, obviously to take in two two little boys, but she picked men badly. Mm -hmm. And she married ex-military, very violent alcoholics that wouldn't work, essentially just worthless men at that stage of their life. And her second husband became became my father from from the age of seven. Just very, very abusive, extremely violent to a level that you can't really explain to people if they haven't lived through it. Um, Just to give you an example, you know, he actually shot a shotgun off in the front room of our of our home. You know, so this is this is what you're dealing with every day. You might go to school that day and have a pretty decent day and get off the bus and come walking in the house and somebody just just beats the crap out of you, you know, and and just poor um, trained. He did train my brother and I how to fight because he was a, 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 fi- a military man, a beret. So he taught us how to be violent. And in a, an environment that was void of love, it was the perfect storm. Okay. And I have a theory, you know, when I do speak at colleges, a person can come out of an environment that is uh, riddled with poverty. We hear about those stories. We know it's possible. But if you live in an environment that is very impoverished, and you go into your home, your dwelling place, and you are abused year after year, that recipe right there leads to death and destruction in prison 99 out of 100 times. There's just no outlet. There's just no escape. Unless someone intervenes uh, out of the public school system, by the time you're 14 or 15 years old, I mean, I was selling drugs for a living at 15 years old which is is very strange in America for a a white person to be doing that. Now you may see a lot of that in the African American community. So I'm just keeping it real here with your with your audience because I spent almost all of my adult life in prison, so I understand the dynamics and the racial disparities and what is going on and you know 
for, for a white person in the United States of America, normally you're going to be afforded a certain amount of opportunities in life. But to slip through the cracks like that, where you're selling drugs full time at 15, 16 years old, living on your own, I was taking care of four people at that time. So by the time I was 19, I was already a drug trafficker. I would get on an airplane in Indianapolis, Indiana. I would fly to the Mexican border at 19 years old by myself, go down there, meet the, the, the Mexicans on the border, get the drugs and traffic them back. I mean, I just didn't I just didn't care. And it was an avenue for me to escape the poverty. Um, and, and that's just kind of how my life unfolded. By the time I was 21, I had convictions across multiple categories. I'd already been convicted for drug trafficking. I'd been to jail in four or five different states. And then when I was turned 21, I had a girlfriend that was 17. So I got in trouble for that. Illinois, super strict on those. End up going to prison. So now I've got drug trafficking. I've got grand larcenies. I have this violent temperament. I'm I'm a leader of a drug organization that includes motorcycle gang members. You know, you just name it, and they're mm-hmm. in that organization. And uh, so when I got out of prison three years later at 24, I just kept right on the way that I was going. I mean, there was no reason for me to really stop. There wasn't really a light at the end of that tunnel. And I got right back in the drug business. Um, and and let, me, let me pause you for just a moment there before we get into when you get married. Because it sounds like, as I'm listening to your story, and you're so good at explaining all of it, I, I feel like I was just kind of walking there right there with you through all of that. It sounded like you didn't really see that there was another choice. If I, I'm thinking if I were in your position at that point, there was no other really option that you can, that's viable. You know, of course, somebody can come in from outside and go, oh, well, you could have done this, you could have done that, blah, blah, blah. But really, when you walked that walk and you've been kind of born into it and that's all that's been around you, that was your life. That's what you did. That's the only thing that you knew. I mean, what other, what other choice did someone, would someone see when they were in that position? You know, that's a really good, that's a good observation. And, and I think that I'm going to give a, a slight clarification here so that your audience can understand that one of the things that you and I talked about before this episode was authenticity. And I have to be authentic because when I give my testimony and I tell people about what's happened in my life, when I give those stories and when I explain that it has to be relatable, you know what I mean? It has, there has to be something there that they can relate to. So one of the things that happened in my life is that it was during that poverty, during that abuse, when I was about seven years old, through a series of tests through the public schools, a revelation came about and said, this, this young man is essentially a, a genius. Now, I'm in a home that's absolute chaos. They start busing me from my home into a special school, and that's where I learned how to play chess, and I went there a couple years. Now, by the time I was in the sixth grade, because of the environment I, I grew up in with no education, nobody watched the news, nobody read a newspaper, nobody went to church, none of these structural things, by the time I was in the sixth grade, I guess I'd have been 11 years old, they said, well, now you can make your own decisions. Which school would you like to go to? Well, when you're 11 years old, you want to go to school with your buddies right. that you live in your neighborhood with. Uh-huh. So I dropped out of that program. I think that's relative in this instance because after I'd been trafficking drugs for a while, I dropped out of high school. 
as a junior in high school, let's say I was going into my senior year, there was really no reason for me to go back to high school. You know, I'm just selling drugs for a living. Mm -hmm. I'm traveling across the country. This is who I am. Yeah. I get a phone call one day from uh, a, a school teacher at the high school who was also a chess coach. And he said, hey, uh, I'd like to find out what's going on with you, man. You haven't been coming to school. You know what's going on? I said, you know what? It was one of those moments where I just felt like being very honest and real with someone. I said, do you really want to know what's going on with mm -hmm. me? And he said, yeah, I actually do. He said, let me take you out to lunch. I said, okay, come pick me up. Now, at this time, I was selling drugs for a living, taking care of multiple people. Mm -hmm. he, came, he came to pick me up. We went to Arby's, and I said, well, I'm going to tell you what's going on. I've been a drug trafficker for the last couple of years. I just got off of a major drug mission. I went to Florida, and then I went to Arkansas, and I got robbed in Arkansas. It almost cost me my life, and I had to steal a vehicle to get back to Illinois. That's why I haven't been coming to school. And you know what this man said to me? And, and this is a clean-cut man, never drank a beer in his life. He said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm going to give you an opportunity right now. You can come and live with me and my wife. We had two sons. They both graduated from college. They've since moved on with their lives. But if you're going to do it, you got to do it right now. Like this moment. I, I said, let's do it. Now, this is a story that I have not shared on many podcasts, but it's absolutely true because usually people are more into the more sensational aspects of my life. And it has so many layers. This layer is not necessarily sensational. But what it is, is it's reality. Okay. And, and I'm going to tell you why he takes me to my house. I don't have a suitcase. I put my clothes in a, in a garbage bag. My brother, my older brother, who I'm also taking care of by selling drugs at that time, looked at me and he said, bro, what are you doing? I said, I'm taking a shot, man. And he looked at me and he said, go ahead. I walked out of there and, it, and I went and I lived with those good people long enough to graduate from high school. But what they couldn't understand because they had never been exposed to it that there was already so much damage that had been done in my young life. Had I met those people when I was six or seven years old, before I'd been sexually abused, before I'd been a drug addict, before I'd been a drug smuggler, things would have been different. But there was no way for them to be able to understand what was really going on with me. You could put good, nice new clothes on me and we can go to school and I can graduate. But that never could change what was in my heart and in my mind. And within just a very few months, I was right back going to Texas, getting drugs. But there was there was an opportunity there. And I, I wanted to tell your audience that because there's a, a famous movie. It's probably 25, 30 years old now about where Matt Damon is this super smart kid mm -hmm. uh, hunting. And he yep. just Robin Williams helps him. And he's been through a lot. And. You know, at the end of the movie, he drives off into the sunset and it's just awesome. OK, that's awesome. But that's not reality. OK, what really happens is that the guy goes to federal prison for 20 years because so much garbage is in him. I mean, that would have taken some intense, intense therapy to get that out of me at that stage of my life. Or something would have had to happen like what did happen in my life. Well, and, and let me pause you for just a minute there talking about therapy because someone has to be willing because I've seen once in a while somebody will come into my office and they've got a lot of stuff going on, but they don't happen to be in a mental space or a space in their life where they're willing or able even at that point to allow those traumas to come forth because it, doing trauma work is hard because you've got to get in touch with the memories. You've got to get, you've got to connect with those feelings. 
and you've got to talk about it and you've got to feel it all and you've got to process it and doing trauma work is hard, but that's what's, it's like pulling, it's like pulling tar out of your soul. Okay. And vomiting it out. It's like vomiting tar out of your soul. That's what trauma work can feel like. And so sometimes somebody might have an opportunity, but they're not really ready because a person has to be ready to do the work of getting, of vomiting that tar out. And it's hard to do because usually many, many for decades, usually by the time they're an adult and they get to me or someone like me, they have kept that pressed down for so long out of, out of survival. You know, they had to keep living. They, they couldn't be feeling all that awful stuff and keep living at the same time. They would just like implode. So sure. they, their mind presses it down and encapsulates it and pushes it off to the side, almost like a, a, a boxed container that's got all tape all around it down in the cellar in a corner of the cellar. And it's like you're walking around the kitchen and there's the door to the cellar and you know those boxes are down there, but you can keep the cellar door closed and just walk around the kitchen and make your scrambled eggs. Sure. And those, those boxes are still down in the cellar. So the, the ability to get that out and face all that stuff and feel all that stuff is really tremendous. And so I just wanted to toss that in because sometimes somebody might have an opportunity, but they don't have the mental and the emotional strength at that time. They might not have the support around them. to, And it's going to need support to be able to feel those feelings and come out with all that stuff. Sure. And you know, that makes perfect sense. It really does. Uh, the, you know, it's interesting, you know, just to also connect this dot, you know, how, what gave this teacher interest in me? Well, what happened was I was actually staying late for a detention as a freshman in high school, getting in, you know, getting in trouble when I did go to school. And I walked by one day and there was a chess cl- uh, club going on. And I just walked in there and started just doing what I did. So I won the state of Illinois freshman, sophomore state chess championship. Even currently at this age of my life, I can still play chess blindfolded right now. I mean, wow. I'm literally in the top 99.9% in the chess based database on the internet out of 10 million players. And, but I, you know, it's not part, it's not a focal point in my life. I do it a little bit every now and then to unwind. I don't study chess or I don't do anything like that. But that's so that's kind of how that went. It's just, that was a blessing that even through all that abuse and even the drug abuse that I that I did engage in when I was, you know, teenager and into my young 20s, God preserved my mind. He actually restored it at one stage, um, you know, kind of catch back up where I was at there at 24, 25 years old. Mm-hmm. So I got out and I started trafficking cocaine and then I got married. I was 26. My wife was 22. And we'd been married about a month when the door got kicked in and it was the DEA and the FBI. So we had been married just a little bit less than a month when I got arrested with six kilos and my mandatory minimum sentence was going to be 20 years in prison. So, yeah, so that was um, and, you know, I just really didn't care, honestly. You know, sure. Yeah. I mean. It, I, you would think that something like that would just be so traumatic. And people say, well, how did you feel when you heard the prison door slam or whatever? Brother, I'd been in prison my whole life. Mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? It, it nothing to me. You know, I, I, I mean, I could just really start right there because this is where the turning point takes place. If, if you'd want me to go ahead and get into that now. You go where you want to go. Okay, so I'm in jail. I'm going to get this 22 years and there's no doubt. 
Okay, they're going to give my wife two years because I'm not cooperating with the government. And I'm not knocking the government or their tactics or how prosecutors work. And it's the carrot and the stick. But if you're not going to cooperate and tell on everybody you ever knew, we're going to put her in prison, too. Even though we know she didn't have anything to do with it, she had to have some knowledge of what was going on. She was your wife. And this is how it's going to go. And I'm, I'm in jail. I'm doing time like I know how to do because I'd been to prison before, working out, hanging out with the guys, you know, gambling, everything. And I'm still running things that are going on on the street to a degree, as much as you can still hold on to, to running things from behind bars. I get a visit from my younger brother and I sent him on a mission to go do something to collect some money. I had, you know, a couple guys owed me forty, fifty thousand dollars and I didn't think much about it. So normal days work, you know, send somebody on a mission and, and that's what they do. And about a week later, I got on the phone and when I did... Uh, it was my aunt. And she asked me, had I been watching the news? And I said, well, no, I haven't been watching the news. She said, so you don't you don't know what happened to your brother? And I said, no, I don't. She said, well, he is he is on life support. She said he, he was in a devastating car accident in a high speed police chase. Running from the from the cops, fleeing from a scene of a shooting. And they were trying to throw the guns out of a, a, the vehicle and turning corners too fast and they lost control. And he's, he, he's, it's, it's not good. And, uh, whew, boy, that was, uh, so that's, that was the summer of 2003. So I just, I just set the phone down and, um, I went into my cell and shut the door and I just got on my knees and I just asked Jesus into my heart. And I said, Lord, look at what, look at what this is. I need you to save my brother's life. If you save his life, I will give you my life. You know, now I, I've started to not just destroy myself with this process of destroying myself, but now I've destroyed every life that's attached to me. My beautiful young wife is going to prison. My brother's dying. Okay. His young life is being snuffed out. And I've caused all this. I sent him on the mission. Now, why did I cry out to Jesus? I don't know. Because I wasn't churched. I'd probably been to church less than three or four times in my life. But when you're in America, you hear about church. You can't help but hear about Jesus in America. There's a church on every corner. I've got to tell you that I did do that. I meant every bit of it. And God held on to his word. Now, I didn't feel anything. There weren't lightning bolts in the cell. But an amazing thing happened about three weeks later. The marshals came and moved me to another jail. Out of nowhere, they just said, pack your stuff. We're putting you in a different jail. Oh, okay. Okay. And they do that. They, that's, <laughs> they can do that. They can do whatever they want. <laughs> they put me in another jail. I was in a cell block and I'm right in there just with the guys. I'm the only white guy in a cell block, but it doesn't matter. Everybody has to respect me because I'm such a violent man and people know me from the street and they know how I was. And, uh, you know, we were gambling at Domino's. We're having workout competitions. And I go to my cell and a still small voice that you learn about as you grow up to be a Christian speaks to me and says, tomorrow you're going to start reading the Bible and you're not going to eat. Now I've never heard of fasting and I've never read the Bible and I've never owned a Bible, but I was obedient because I remembered what I'd done. See, mm -hmm. my brother still alive. Because you keep your promises. My, that's right. I've got to keep my, and my brother's still alive at this point. Mm-hmm. 
I go down to an old black man who lives down at the end of the tier. I'd seen him with a Bible, about a five-inch thick old King James Version Bible. And I said, Pop, can I borrow your Bible? And he said, yeah, you can borrow it. And I, I took it back to my cell. And when I came out of there 11 days later, I'd read the Bible from the first word to the last. And my life has never been the same. In King James, no less. Yes, ma'am. And I'm talking about the life of people that are around me cannot remain the same. And I'm not saying that boastfully. I'm saying that because that's how great our God is. From the time that 11 days was over, and I went back down there and handed him that Bible. What the Lord showed me throughout that entire Bible, I told him, I said, brother, this is the greatest love letter ever written right here. From that point forward in this cell block that was full of vice lords and gangster disciples and all gang members, of which I was one, Mm -hmm. we went from watching BET Rhapsody to having Christian Bible study in that cell block. And it was and the officers would walk by and be like, what in the world is going on? We would go through the Bible because they saw the change in me. So after a few days, they got curious. What is going on with you, Rooster? I'm like, man, I don't know, bro. But something is on me, man, and it is awesome. And I would start writing down scriptures all over the walls of the cell that I was in. So we're having these Bible studies. We're praying together. No other cell block is doing this. And that type of stuff would be a pattern throughout my life in prison. Now, I'll back up to this in a moment and go into 2004 when the greatest event in my life happened, even greater than my children. But I'm going to tell you that my brother ends up surviving. Now, he has severe brain damage. He's got steel plates all up and down his body. He has to learn how to walk again. He has to learn how to pour a cup of coffee. He has to learn how to write with a pen again. Right now, today, right now, today, this man's born again and saved and walking and he can run. You know what I mean? And this is 20 years later. But so watch what happens. I want to fast forward and skip a lot of stuff because I want to connect these dots right here for the audience so they can understand. In 2017, so we're going to fast forward, what, 14 years. This is when I go to do a year in solitary confinement. Now, can I ask you quickly, Sure. was that something, when I read that in your bio, I'm like, was that voluntary or were you put in solitary confinement? Because that's a big difference between the two. Oh, no, no. Voluntarily going to solitary confinement would be like checking in. That would be in prison what you call checking in, meaning you're scared, you've done something wrong, you can't be out on the compound in general population because guys are going to do something to you. Oh, no. I I had went to solitary confinement many times during the course of my incarceration for various things. I mean, it's prison. You know what I mean? So in 2005, I got in a fight one day while I was sitting in bed reading the Bible and a guy came into my room and disrespected me that was outside of my race. And I was completely born again. But I wasn't a perfect man. I'm still not a perfect man. I put that Bible down and walked out of that cell. He thought he was dealing with a 155 pound white man. He didn't know he was dealing with a machine that had been trained to fight since he was eight years old. Mm-hmm. I beat the crap out of this giant. You know what I mean? So when for the reason that I was in solitary confinement in 2017 is really kind of unique because what? OK, and I'll, I'll explain it to you really quick. And this is why I'm a big advocate about prison reform on certain levels, because the way that it works with the bureaucracy is they're always so far behind the curve. In 2015 and 16, I was in federal prison in Virginia. Okay, they move you periodically whenever they want to move you. I started out in Florida. I did about eight years in Florida. I went up through Georgia. I did four years in North Carolina and then I ended up in Virginia. There is a huge outbreak of a grayish fentanyl heroin 
throughout the Federal Bureau of Prisons that is killing inmates. The prison that I was in in Virginia was averaging three overdoses a day. They had no recourse for this. The Bureau of Prisons was not ready for this epidemic. Now, you want to ask me, how do drugs get into prison? It is flooded. Prisons in the United States are flooded with drugs. You, there are more drug dealers in your unit in prison than there are on the street. Because when you open your door, they're all right there selling drugs, okay, mm-hmm. inside the prison. So they're averaging about three overdoses a day. The BOP has nothing to combat this. At that time, the officers weren't carrying the naloxone. There, there was really nothing they could do. But there was a, there's a drug, if you call it a drug, it's more of a medication, but I guess it does have some druggish type of qualities called Suboxone. And it's an opiate blocker where if somebody's using that particular medication, they will not use heroin because it'll make them sick. See, they, so they won't do it and they'll stay away from it. So when I was transferred to the former ADX in Illinois and I got there, I started to get Suboxone. I had someone from outside the prison giving me Suboxone and I was giving it to guys in there. Well, that's a no-no. That is absolutely illegal. Now, what's it doing? It's keeping these guys from using heroin and dying. So now watch what happens. And God was in all this all the time. And I don't want to make it like I was some type of a saint and I was risking my life to save other guys. It's not like that. You know what I mean? Like I said, there was still some rough edges, always rough edges as a man is being molded by God. You fast forward now to where it is now, which is only five years later. In 2021, the Federal Bureau of Prisons started prescribing Suboxone for inmates, <laughs> which they should have been doing from the beginning because they were having a drug epidemic. But it takes four or five years to cut through the bureaucratic tape and men have to die from overdoses in prison. You don't want to go in there and save this guy from an overdose. The cops are not going to do it. So what are you going to do? You go in there and you throw ice bags all over the guy. You put ice bags on his groin and over his body while he's still unconscious. You walk away because you can't be there when he dies or you're going to jail. You know what I mean? So the whole thing, the dichotomy of the whole thing was very, very crazy. Um, but the point is, at the moment that I was doing it, it was absolutely against the rules. OK, so I go to solitary confinement. Now, at that time, Obama had signed a memorandum that said you can't be in solitary confinement longer than six months. OK, I ended up spending 377 days in there. And the reason was because of God. It was no behavior on my point. They constantly put me in for transfers. All the transfers have to go to Grand Prairie, Texas. The transfer centers kept writing back and saying that inmate's properly placed. So there was actually a war going on, a a, a bureaucratic war between the warden of the prison, the transfer center. The warden says, I can't hold this guy in solitary confinement any longer. The transfer center saying our network says he's properly placed, but God was doing it the whole time. And this is where... I need your listeners to stretch out because every time then every time we put God in a four by four box, he likes to blow those boxes apart. Okay. He doesn't care about that. He does not care about our boxes, man. We're talking about God, the God of the universe. Come on. He doesn't care about the boxes we make and put them in. While I was in there in solitary confinement, I was in a cell by myself, but there were bars in the front of the cell. So I started there with a very rigorous routine of prayer and fasting, constant Bible reading, praying four or five hours a day and just staying in tune with God 100 percent. After a few months of that, some of the men that lived around me that I couldn't see, but we could hear each other because we could holler out the bars. We kind of opened up the, the floor for questions. 
you're in solitary confinement. Guys are killing themselves. I mean, this is a depressing environment. Mm -hmm. Out of these four tiers, you might see anything on any given day. Somebody gets a hold of a razor and cuts their body all up and you'll see the cop dragging them out. It's that type of environment. They're asking questions about the Bible and I start to answer them. The next thing you know, we're having Bible study. The next thing you know, every night I'm preaching the word outside the bars, yelling out the bars every single night, preaching the word for six months. Guys are getting saved all over the place. God was in it to the point that not only did revival break out back there, but I had correctional officers inside the prison come to my cell and ask me to pray for them. Take their hat off and put their head up to the bars and ask me to put my hand on them and pray for them. It was God all over me. They'd never seen anything like it. And it wasn't because I'm a special dude. It's because I made myself available. I counted the cost. I was willing to pay the price. I told the Lord on my first seven day fast, I said, Lord, I won't take any more food. I'll take nothing but water because I need you to change the course of my life. And he did. And and, and a full disclosure of information I just did a 21-day water-only fast. I started Christmas Eve at 8 p.m. and ended on January the 14th at 8 p.m. 21-day water-only fast. I lost about 26 pounds. And God showed me things during that fast that were just incredible, incredible. You talked about the gunk and the puking up of the tar. Mm -hmm. I've been out now almost a year. I live a fairly godly life. I mean, I'm really always pressing into God. I go to church four times a week at two different churches. You know, I'm constantly uh, uh, preaching the word, praying for people. I pray for uh, bedridden people over Skype and or not Skype, excuse me, but, you know, like FaceTime and things like that. It doesn't matter wherever I'm at. If, if the Holy Spirit says, go do it, Stephen, I go do it. And, but during that fast, one of the things he showed me on day nine was a pipe that's in us that's connected to this huge pool of water that's above us. Huge, vast pool of water with a skinny pipe about three or four inches that goes into us. And in that pool right there, that water is the Holy Spirit connected to us. And in this pipe right here was all this gunk. You were just talking about that tar. It was just full of gunk. I was laying here on my couch when he showed it to me in a vision. And I'm looking at it. I was like, Lord, what is that? And he let me know that's what that is. But I'm thinking, wow, that's crazy because I'm praying all day long. My business is a Christian business. I've been all these podcasts talking about Jesus. You know, how does that get stuffed up like that? The cares of the world, the things of the world that we allow to come into us that occupy our thoughts and our time. So he showed me all that gunk that was clogging that pipe and he took it out in a flash. Boom. And when he did that, he opened that flow up from that giant pool full of the Holy Spirit, and it was flooding through that pipe in rivers of raging water. And he said, now I've increased your spiritual capacity. And that was the vision that he gave me on day nine. If I tell you right now, I'm going to tell you something right now that I was going to put this on social media. I put a few videos out on social media. Sometimes they get four or 5,000 views in just a couple hours. So not, and, and I'm doing it to try to lift people up, to give people some hope. You know, that that have been through similar things that I've been through, been abused. If you're a man and you were sexually abused, it's OK to talk about that mm. and say, hey, man, this is what, you know, happened to me. There's so much lack of transparency in that area. Yes. One, of the, yes. one of the groups I'm in is a men's group, a Christian men's group. I stick out. These are all business owners. These guys been going to church their whole life. They're, they've never had a hint of ever going to jail after going there for four or five months. I said, Let me ask you guys something. How many guys in here were sexually abused as a child? you would have been shocked. 
If I told you we have a confidentiality agreement in there, we don't reveal it. But you would have been shocked if you would have seen how many hands went up. Afterwards, men are shaking my hand. So we never talk about stuff like that. So don't you think that's important, man, maybe to talk to your wife about that? Maybe there's an issue there. You know, let me go back to this vision real quick, because this is this is awesome. So (laughs) on day 14, I have a vision. And as I'm laying here, I see a gentleman with a black hoodie on leaning up against. He's sitting on the floor and he's leaning up against a wall. And I can't see his face, but as I come around to try to look at his face, the hole in the front where you pull the string gets smaller and smaller. I can't see his face. So I backed up and I said, Lord, I don't, I can't see that. I don't understand what this is. And, you know, and you can communicate with him a little bit like that without getting too far into the spiritual aspects of it. But if I don't understand something, I just tell the Lord, I don't understand it. You know what I mean? I step back and he pulls the hood back. And it's a guy, he's got about, you know, he's one of them guys that keeps his hair about a, a quarter to a half inch long. And I'm looking at him and I said, man, that guy looks so familiar. It's still very dark around him, but he looks very familiar, but I don't know who that is. And then, then the vision went away. So as I'm laying here on the couch and I'm sitting around and I'm thinking about these things and I'm pondering these things. And remember, this, is, this was day 14 with just water only. You know, this is a real serious biblical fast. I get a... Beep on the phone. Somebody is sending me a friend request. I go and I look at it. And the profile picture that's on there is the picture from the vision that I just had. It's that picture that I just described to you is the profile picture of this person. And I recognize the name. And it's a man that I used to give kilos to over 20 years ago. And I accepted his friend request. And I said, hey, how'd you find me? You know, how you doing? He said, I've been keeping up with you. Please don't stop doing what you're doing. It is inspiring. Please do not stop doing what you're doing, man. He didn't know I was fasting. He just sees me preaching on the, you know, social media sometimes. Mm -hmm. So we just went back and forth with that, you know, nothing to it. The next night, Day, like day 15, I am just wiped out. It's, it's, you know, I'm, I'm low on energy. 10 o'clock, I crawl into bed. I get comfortable. I'm there about 10 minutes and my phone starts ringing. I told the Lord, I said, Lord, I, I'm not getting up to answer the phone. I'm just not going to do it. I'm tired. I'm tired. I'm tired. I don't know what's going on. You know, because I cut off. I didn't watch television during the 21 days. I cut out the social media. I didn't make any posts. I didn't tell people what was going on. I didn't even go to work the last week of it because I was looking so, so skinny. Mm-hmm. And he said, no, no. You get up and answer the phone. It's your responsibility. So I pulled the blankets back and I walked in here and I answered the phone. I picked it up. It was him. It was the guy calling me. I said, hello, hello, hello. And I did this for about 30 seconds. Yep, nothing. So I hang the phone up and set it back down. And as I get to the door of my room, it rings again. So I walk back over and I pick up the phone. I said, hey, man, what's going on? He said, brother, I'm going to tell you something. That was the craziest thing ever happened in my life. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, I live here by myself. He said, my phone was across the room. I'm on the other side of the room. And all I hear is a voice saying, hello, 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 hello. I said, what are you talking about? He said, brother, my phone called you, man. He said, my phone called you. I said, well, now he has no idea. He has no idea that I've been fasting for 15 days at this point. I said, well, why don't you talk to me, man? What's going on? I mean, talk to me. How you been? You know? And he said, I'm doing all right, man. I said, well, what? I said, I, I, I'm feeling like maybe you're out there on a little bit of an island. He said, I am, man. He said, I, 
I got to tell you something. He said, I got saved. He said, I got saved about, you know, 12, 13 years ago, man. I said, did you really? He said, I did. He said, but everybody I'm around so far away from God. He said, there's not guys like us out here that used to be career criminals that are doing this. You know, he said, I was doing that. He said, I was, I had my Bible with me every day for a year straight. He said, but I'm just, I'm out here by myself. I said, let me tell you something. You ain't out there by yourself no more. 